This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Emerson, Micah, Caleb F., Levi, and Israel. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Emerson, who asks, How long has Grace been a church? Well, Emerson, the group of people who eventually formed this church started meeting together in late 2007, early 2008. I remember this Sunday in March 2008 when I first attended one of those meetings. And I've been a part of this group ever since, for almost 16 years now. But churches trace their birthday to the time they become self-governing. In other words, we count back to the moment when we ordained and installed our first elders. That happened on Friday the 14th, 2010. At that service, Pastor Wayne Reed gave the charge to the congregation, and Pastor Stephen Weinja administered the ordination vows to the candidates. After that, we became a self-governing church. Now, if you do the math, that means that earlier this month, on Wednesday, February 14th, 2024, Grace turned 14 years old. And since I was ordained and installed as the pastor of Grace on February 14th, 2017, I've been the pastor of this church for seven years, which is 50% of its run. And now Micah asks, In the beginning it says it was only God, but when did he create angels and when did Satan become evil? Well, Micah, you're absolutely right. The Bible begins with God's creation of the world. And as we learn later, some things had already happened prior to that. Now, you mentioned two of them, the creation of the angels and the fall of Satan, along with some of those angels. Now, since the angels were witnesses to creation, we know that they were made before the events of Genesis 1 or at least before some of those events. There are some interpreters who would argue that although they're not mentioned by name, the angels are actually created when the heavens and the earth are on that first day. And then they were there to shout for joy as the foundations of the world were laid a little bit later. Now, since Satan and the fallen angels had to exist before they fell, we know that the creation of angels came first, and then the fall of Satan. By Genesis 3, we see Satan already at work to undermine God's creation. Yet, Ezekiel 28 refers to Satan before his fall and says, in part, you were in Eden, the garden of God. If I'm reading that correctly, it sounds like the fall of Satan occurred sometime between the events of Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. But here's the thing. The Bible was written about the creation and redemption of our world, so its focus is on the human race, not the angelic realm. Realities outside our world are constantly mentioned in the Bible, but not always explained, and certainly not with enough detail for us to do more than conjecture. 
So take this for what it's worth. As far as I can tell, the creation of angels must have happened either before the creation account of Genesis 1 or right at the beginning of it, while the fall of Satan and his minions happened sometime after that, but before Genesis 3. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Caleb F. Let's give Caleb a round of applause. Here's Caleb's question. Why are swearing and cursing bad? Who decided that certain words are swear words or bad words? Well, when I was your age, Caleb, this was one of the questions that I thought about a lot. So first, I'm going to answer your question, and then I'm going to give you a list of all the bad words that you shouldn't say, and then some of the bad words people think are bad, but actually are okay. Let's start by clarifying our terms, because in English, we talk about swearing and cursing as if they're the same thing, basically cussing or using obscene words or expressions in our speech. But in the Bible, swearing is oath-taking, and curses are penalties for breaking God's covenant. That means in Bible terms that some swearing is good and some swearing is bad. It depends on what oaths you take, who you swear them to, and whether you're sincere. Curses are sometimes spoken by God himself as a punishment for sin. Now, as you can imagine, this creates a lot of confusion. If your parent or pastor or Sunday school teacher says you shouldn't swear or curse and quotes scripture that's actually referring to making false promises or swearing by false gods, one day when you read the Bible for yourself, you'll see that the scripture isn't referring to cussing or profanity. And you'll tell yourself, all right then, I guess cussing isn't a sin. But not so fast. Just because swearing and cursing isn't the same as profanity in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible says nothing about profanity. Consider the Apostle Paul, for example. In Ephesians 4, right after he's condemned theft, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. In the next chapter, chapter 5, he adds, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, the way Paul frames the question of speech is similar to what you'll find throughout the New Testament. Fallen human beings have a tendency to use their speech to attack and tear down one another. Instead, we're called to build each other up. Now, this condemnation is not confined to what we would call profanity, but it does include it. In other words, you could break these commands without uttering a cuss word, but you can't utter a cuss word without breaking them. Now, I promised you a list of bad words, didn't I? Well, I was just testing to see whether or not you were listening. I'm not going to use profanity to make my point, obviously. But I do want to acknowledge the complexity of identifying what words are okay to use and when, and what words are not. The Bible's own use of language is instructive here. 
The original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts sometimes use language that, if it were translated directly, would sound crude or offensive to modern ears. There are things the Bible speaks of more frankly than we would. For example, there was a word, I'm not going to use it, that my mother never allowed either me or my brother to say. She said it wasn't polite and that whenever we wanted to talk about the thing that the word referred to, we should use this other term which she thought was more polite. Then one day I was reading in the Bible and in 2 Kings, the King James Bible used the very word that we were told was forbidden. And I thought, how can it be wrong if it's literally in the Bible? Well, language is complex. A word can be descriptive in one language at one time and vulgar in another language or another time. You might be able to say something in, for example, 1554 that would be off limits in 2024 or vice versa. Or you might be able to use a word in one context that in another situation would be inappropriate. If you've ever spoken to someone from the United Kingdom, for example, you'll know that although they speak English just like we do, there are some words that they use that sound very naughty to us and words that we use that sound very obscene to them. Now, Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible simply had a list of bad words, and we could be certain that as long as whatever we said wasn't on the list, it was perfectly fine to say. The Bible quite sensibly addresses the principle of profane corrupting speech, not the specifics, because the specifics will change while the principle will not. Simply put, we should guard our tongues, And that means being careful about what we say and also careful about how we say it. Because our speech has the power to wound people deeply, we should exercise as much self-discipline when it comes to our language as we would when it comes to physical force, striving in every language and in any context to do no harm, but rather to build people up. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Levi, who asks, Would you have a pet dinosaur if they weren't extinct? And what would it be? P.S., he adds, it would be tame and wouldn't eat anybody. Well, Levi, that takes out a lot of the fun. But I have to say, would I have a pet dinosaur? Maybe, maybe not. The problem with a pet dinosaur is that they've been extinct so long, we don't really know what kind of demands they make in terms of upkeep. I wouldn't want a T-Rex, for example, if I had to walk him every day and carry a little plastic bag and a scooper in case of emergencies. But if he were low maintenance, then maybe so. Now everybody knows I have a soft spot for the Triceratops because of his extra horn, but I think a pterodactyl would probably be the most practical pet because I could fly him around and beat the traffic. And now Israel asks, what would you do if there were 10,000 lions in your house? Israel, that depends on whether or not I had a dinosaur, because if I had a dinosaur, I think the lions could probably entertain that big lizard and vice versa. 
believe it or not, I already have two pets who believe they are lions, even though they are really just cats. I wouldn't want 10,000 of them in the house, so I don't imagine that having actual lions would be any more appealing. The truth is, if a crowd of animals of any kind moved into my house, regardless of the species, I'd probably just let them have the place. I could just grab a blanket and start sleeping in the backyard. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.